welcome to this new Thinking for a New World podcast of the Talberg Foundation. How do scientists identify epidemics? How should they be dealt with? And what needs to be done to mitigate the chances of epidemics becoming pandemics, as has now happened with COVID-19? Alan Stoger, the chairman of the foundation, called Anne Goldfels from his home to discuss these and other related issues. Anne is professor of medicine and pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and an infectious disease specialist. She is also a 2019 Talberg Eliasson Global Leadership Prize laureate. For those of us who, thank God, have never thought about pandemics or even epidemics, what are they? Do they follow a common trajectory? Uh, what has your experience over the years taught you uh, about how these things unfold and, and, and what we're looking at now? You know, it, as a medical resident, HIV entered my life um, in the hospital. And then on the Thai-Cambodian border, I saw another kind of epidemic, which was uh, landmines, which all of a sudden was uh, a, a huge issue in terms of seeing people uh, uh, with increasing rapidity stepping on mines and, and being severely or mortally injured. And then the other epidemic I've been involved in has been the tuberculosis epidemic, which, uh, and the drug-resistant TB epidemic. And the thing that all three of those seemingly diverse, two different kinds of pathogens and uh, an issue that's a, a leftover of war have in common are that um, um, something happens and you start to see something that's out of the usual. In the case of HIV, some very astute physicians started noticing young men uh, who were coming to the clinic with a very unusual panoply of symptoms with lymph nodes and then um, being with, with enlarged lymph nodes, with fevers, wasted. And people started putting it together um, that this was something that was not usual. And um, and then by 1981, there were collections of patients like this in both New York and in Los Angeles predominantly, and also in Europe. And they uh, were then uh, presented as an unknown to the medical community. And that's how we began to learn about HIV. And and I think what was and similarly with the drug resistant TB problem in the world. You know, it wasn't really appreciated, and it was thought that it was people had drug-resistant TB because they hadn't taken the original course of treatment well. People said there was basically no drug-resistant TB in Africa, even in the, you know, in the early 2000s, and that was completely wrong. So the, 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 and then just again with landmines, as these wars of, you know, the East and West came to a conclusion in Afghanistan uh, in Cambodia, etc., people started moving into civilians, uh, farmers started moving into these rural areas and started blowing up. And it took people who were really on the front lines uh, being starting to document this phenomenon. And what's interesting, and with this new coronavirus, what I've uh, been very struck by is the most important thing is very clear reporting of what is of the new phenomenon as quickly as possible and then trying to 
solve the problem as quickly as possible. So that's actually what happened with HIV eventually, but there was a lot of misinformation. And I was thinking as so much of the information for coronavirus were coming, was coming out, which was, there was many confusing signals that reminded me of the early days of the HIV epidemic, where in the beginning, uh, people were told that blood was not infectious because this was a big issue for the blood banks, which is, turns out is a big business. And the, not, not in hospitals, but in the private blood collection uh, industry at the time. Um, there were a lot of mitigating factors that interrupted good advice, and it became very, very confusing. So once, once you begin to suspect there's something going on, that there is a new virus, a new pathogen uh, affecting communities, what happens? How do you stand up the medical infrastructure? Well, I think it's very clear information and in trying to separate it from political agendas. There was a fear of upsetting the apple cart of different uh, industries, such as the blood banking industry, uh, that without knowledge, people were promoting approaches. And so the first thing that has to happen is really clear communication about risks and education, because most people, unless they have a, you know, a, a real, pro, you know, they're, most people want to be well, they want their family to be well. And if you give them a clear message, they're going to get behind. Uh, so that's just the public aspect of things. The second thing that you, what you asked is how do you mobilize? I think, again, it's with really clear information, like is being given to us now by Dr. Anthony Fauci, um, which I think has been like a real blessing in this epidemic. So um, when you know how bad it's going to be, you then uh, people start mobilizing. And that's really what happened. It took, it took a lot of illness to get to the point where we had really rational community plans. And also things are moving very, very fast now. So I, in terms of coronavirus, I can't stay away from it because it's what's you know consuming all of us right now. I think it's clarity. It's scientific documentation. It's saying you don't know when you don't know, as opposed to saying everything's fine. And then solutions follow. I mean, in HIV, you know, there was very rapidly, the virus was identified. You know, by 1983, it was identified. And it was hard to identify because it was a uh, kind of a virus that it was very difficult to culture in the beginning from blood samples. And it took a scientific insight that you had to culture it from people before they were very ill. And that insight belonged to Françoise Barré-Sinussi at the Pasteur, and that's why she won the Nobel Prize a few years ago. So it's, it's funding, and that's the other thing with the scientific will. The, sci the science that has to go into this really requires uh, a national response and lots of funding to be able to promote the kind of work that needs to be done, as you described, you know, first figuring out more about the pathogen and then figuring out new drugs and new vaccines, for example. Now, in this case, there seems to already be a lot of information and even knowledge about the pathogen. Can you talk a little bit about what we know about the virus itself uh, in terms that we might understand? So first of all, we know a lot about it because it's very closely related to SARS that struck the world in 2002 and 2003, and there was a lot of work done on it at that time. And this is, you know, a close cousin of SARS. It's got different features, but 
one thing that they all have in common, which is this whole class of viruses has in common, is that they um, they trick the immune system into sleeping while they enter the house, so to speak. I mean, they're almost like a stealthy thief that gets in and doesn't and knows how to avoid the alarm system of the house. Um, so we all have in our cells uh, like an alarm that goes off when a virus come, enters the cell. And that alarm is involved in recognizing the structure of viruses, most but in, in particular RNA viruses. There's DNA viruses and RNA viruses have heard of DNA and RNA. It doesn't really matter except that the cell sees RNA that doesn't belong in it hanging around in, the, um, in a part of the cell that RNA doesn't usually go to. And it goes, uh, it sets off an alarm system that results in an antiviral response, which we all feel is fever. When you feel sick, it's, that's part of the antiviral response. It's uh, your body trying to fight the pathogen. But coronaviruses have this, as many viruses do, but coronavirus has a very effective way of just slipping in and replicating in a way that it doesn't uh, alarm the cell. So by the time the body starts fighting the virus, it's behind. And that's, I think, a major aspect of why it is such a serious pathogen. And I mean, there's many other aspects about this particular virus that are being uncovered right now. And the fact that it can live on surfaces for a long time and is also uh, communicable by droplets in the air are, is a big problem. So it's both very infectious uh, and it, it's able to get into another person very easily and set up house, so to speak. The one good thing about it is it isn't as um, as mortal, so to speak, as some other viruses. So I'll, as bad as it is, it's it's horrendous what's happening. But it's um, the mortality rate is not clear yet. But it, it looks like it's about one percent, which is terrible. But it could be worse. So that's the one good thing about it. Uh, Italy's reporting twice as many cases as Germany, but Italy has fifty times as many deaths. My assumption is those are bad numbers, or rather the numbers are incomplete. It must be, or, or could it be that uh, many more Italians have been infected than are known? And that really is the question. Are these relationships, infection and fatality rates, constant across cultures and countries? I would imagine this is one of those places where borders are irrelevant. I, just, uh, I would agree with you, but you know all that data is coming in, and so it's not known yet. But a couple of things to think about are, first of all, your point that perhaps it was a much higher infection rate of the population. And it's estimated, for example, in Massachusetts, that by the time this thing is done now and maybe the next wave, there'll 40% of everybody in the state will have been infected. So it may be that it got there a little sooner. Um, it may be that, it, that the denominator is bigger. So that's one thing. The other thing that is known is that um, people with pulmonary disease or lung disease are more at risk of a bad outcome, which is what you're talking about, the rate of death there. So if you have more smokers, uh, more people with you know, chronic lung diseases, 
that may may be playing a role in this as well. So it's yet to be elucidated, and it is peculiar. I agree with you. I've read that this virus does not seem to be mutating quickly, which I take it is good news, not bad news, both in terms of potentially producing immunity once you've had COVID-19, and on the other hand, eventually evolving drugs and vaccines. Is, is, that, a, is that a fair statement? That's what I understand, but I think it's too soon to know, actually. Some of these viruses tend to mutate to become less pathogenic. And that's why, for example, SARS disappeared. Um, and so one hope was that this would disappear, but apparently it doesn't look like that. And I know that only from watching CNN yesterday, not from any scientific uh, source. But there's now some new, for lack of new pods of infection in, like, in South America, and they think that it's related to the seasonality of this kind of a virus, and it's just completely unclear still. You mentioned a moment ago uh, the dreaded two words, second wave, and I assume that is also in the list of known unknowns because it's too early. There do seem to be some reports out of Asia that had, particularly China, Singapore, Korea, that look to have and I use this word with a big question mark around it, solved the problem, however they did it, put that aside for a second, uh, but are now seeing a second wave of infections, which could be imported, people come from other places with it, or could be a second wave of indigenous disease. Based on what you've heard, read, seen, and your history, does, how, should, how worried should people be about that second wave problem? So I don't know any more than you know uh, about it uh, right now. I haven't seen uh, projections about it. I think that the thing that we have to do now is really try to, as best as we can, you know, really solve the problem and decrease the number of infections that we have going on right now. And I'm sitting in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and there are a lot of people infected in this uh, state. And so we've really got to practice this social distancing really effectively and try to really let the people who are, you know, unfortunately sick get through their sickness and and try to not get exposed to people who are carrying it right now and are going through a subclinical infection. So that really, that's the best thing we can do. And um, I, I think we're going to hear more and more about the second wave concept. But my understanding is that uh, one scenario is that we really, in the next couple of months, by the summer, um, kind of get this major infection that we're dealing with right now on the more or less over, and that we might be looking at something in the fall again. We had a Tilburg Foundation event yesterday on related issues, and someone in the course of the conversation said, you know, it may be that we can't solve it until everybody solves it. That is to say, this seems to be a global phenomenon in ways that we really haven't seen in, in the modern period. Every country, certainly every continent, uh, has significant cases, and the epicenter seems to hop around, or epicenters seem to hop around. Uh, would you agree with that, that this is something that requires a degree of global efficacy that is not usual. Yes, and collaboration, you know, I mean, it, it's clear that we have to have a really good global system now. So if something starts to pop up someplace, 
that it's shut down really quickly. So that's the other thing about what happened in China. How long were they, uh, how long was this going on for? I've heard that it was going on for a couple of months. I keep thinking of Chernobyl. When Chernobyl happened, the Russians didn't want to share that event with the rest of the world, but they couldn't help it because the plumes of radiation were like floating over Europe and uh, they were detected. And we didn't have, we don't have that kind of situation here where, um, so so we've got to, you know, in the interest of, of people not suffering this kind of event again, we have to have a very clear alarm system and communication between countries and know how to shut it down, like at the source, and also have strategies to stop this spread, you know, through all the air travel and all the other stuff. So you're definitely right. It's, it's, it's a moment for a whole rethinking of how this stuff is handled. Let's talk for just a moment about drugs and vaccines. There's been an awful lot of chatter recently about using drugs that have been developed for other purposes that may or may not have consequence on COVID-19. There's been a lot of talk about rushing drugs to market or not rushing drugs to market. How do you think about drugs and vaccines in this context? So the strategy you're talking about with drugs, it's uh, you know the idea of there's two, one strategy is repurposing, so to speak, drugs that have been used for one thing effectively that might also work on this. And that's one example of that is the hydroxychloroquine that has been in the, quite in the news uh, and where there was a small group of patients that seemed to benefit from it. But this morning, there was a new study saying that actually the hydroxychloroquine doesn't benefit um, patients with COVID-19. But still, there's some formal trials going on right now, and we'll have a definitive answer very, very soon. People really rapidly got on top of this. So that's what's attractive about those kind of approaches are that drugs like chloroquine or another antibiotic called um, azithromycin um, have been used in millions of people with not without with few side effects. I mean, there are side effects, but not uh, they're, they're known side effects and they're tolerable for humans. So that really changes things because it allows you to move drugs really fast into for another purpose because you know they're safe or relatively safe in human beings already. Whereas if you just discover a new drug, you have to go through all that safety testing first. And, but um, what I understand is that at the time of SARS, there was uh, a, a lot of effort put into um, trying to find um, an anti-SARS drug. And now people are beginning to look at that group of compounds because, um, but, you know, again, they weren't developed partially because the market for the development of these drugs, it's very expensive and it takes a long time to develop a new drug. And it, it just was dropped after SARS uh, got less interesting and was, was less of a problem. So there's a big effort now looking at all sorts of compounds that could inhibit um, SARS-CoV-2, which is the name of uh, COVID-19, and both these kind of FDA-approved drugs already, like chloroquine, and then new drugs, new compounds. And so there's a lot of effort on in those in that area right now. I know that there's more than one uh, vaccine that is, there's one already 
that was given through a safety trial, uh, is in the middle of a safety trial. But there's candidates, there's a pipeline, which is great. And I, what I understand, uh, this is not my field, but what I understand is that there are some good candidates. So we're just going to have to see. Let's switch briefly to ethics. It strikes me that there are some profound ethical questions floating around this entire discussion. One we've touched on, which is at the global level, the responsibility of countries uh, to fess up, to share, to be open about their own realities and, and their search for solutions. Uh, and that's a test that many governments have been failing spectacularly, I would argue. But at a personal level, clearly there's a discussion on, we see it in Italy, we see it in Spain, it's beginning to pop up in the United States, that because this drug, because this disease rather, primarily or, or is, is most fatal for people who are either already have compromised systems, already have respiratory problems, or have both or either of those and are older, older than 60, older than 70, older than 80, uh, that it, it is a question of how you allocate scarce medical resources, including things as simple as gowns and, and masks and gloves. And how, how should we think about the ethical question, either at the global level or at this individual treat level? Mm -hmm. First ethical question is, um, how is it possible that we don't have enough PPE, protective... Personal protection equipment. Exactly. How is that possible? How is it possible that once it became clear what this disease was, you know, in January and February, and that it was coming our way, that we didn't transform industries that are, you know, that in this country into producing these, um, the, not only the PPE, but ventilators and other kinds of medical equipment that we need. So that's number one. That's really a, a question of how was that ethical, that that was just not dealt with at all. So vis-a-vis -vis your other question, the first thing is that we actually still don't know. Uh, I thought that was, um, I heard that report. Um, and. I was very surprised by it because, first of all, I have not seen data on uh, understanding how, if you're intubated, what your chances are of getting out of uh, out of the hospital afterward. And I've actually heard new, some data that uh, maybe it's anecdotal data I've heard from colleagues that if you um, intubate people earlier, they seem to do better but it's not shown yet. So I think there's a lot of um, unknowns. And uh, first of all, we need to know, we have to really be data-driven to begin with. Let's try to understand if there's basically no chance to save someone at a certain point, and that's known from a multitude of cases, and there's a big problem with uh, resources, then that is an ethical dilemma that needs to be you know, and, and you're going to expose healthcare workers who don't have uh, protection at a certain point. But it has to be informed by information. It's not like an emotional, it can't be an emotional decision. That's, I guess, what I want to say. Let's step back from the details and finish with a 60,000 foot question. Are, are there early lessons that you would hope that political leaders or the people responsible for national and global health systems, health policies, 
might take away from this? Have we learned anything yet or is it too early? You know, from the 60,000 foot perch, uh, you know, this is an infectious disease. That means it is curable on some level. You know, yes, some people die, but a lot of people survive. So I feel very strongly about that, that the idea that yesterday it was reported that there's these conversations of who we should let die, I think is very premature. And I would be focusing on really focusing on what we can do to bring a curative response to people. Uh, Okay, so now what have we learned? So you've touched on many of them. We've learned that we are all profoundly connected. And that means that um, if someone gets sick in Wuhan, uh, that we get sick here in Boston, and I, you know, we you end up with tens of thousands, maybe a million cases in this more more in this country, and um, so we can't just be in this isolationist little bubble. So that's number one. The thing that's so aggravating about this is that after SARS, it was known that if you have wildlife in these markets, you know, very close to livestock that are being slaughtered for eating alongside with wild animals. That's a very unhealthy combination. And these markets were not shut down in China. And it's outrageous, actually. Um, Number two, the reporting system has to be like automatic. We have to find a way that people are, um, that we are sharing data a lot better. And, uh, and then we have to learn from each other's experience. On the other hand, China really seems to have, for lack of a better word, I don't, conquered is not the right word, but have uh, you know, severely dampened the virus and in new infections and maybe have eradicated it until new people are coming back with it. So we need to learn from that. And I think the real challenge finally is going to be when we do get to the end of this particular episode, whenever that happens, Will we be? Will we decide as as a planet to try to be more global or less global? I'm not sure it's a real option, I, I, of course. But there's a lot of people who could come out of this and say, "I don't want to get sick because somebody in Wuhan got sick, so I'm going to try to pull myself away from the globe." And I think my biggest fear, my biggest concern in all this is that those nationalist isolationist tendencies uh, with all of their obvious downsides might be understandable, might be more popular, might be at least tried to a greater extent because of this experience over the last over the last couple months and whatever the hell happens to us in the next couple months. Uh, you know, I, that is a definitely a worry. And it's really going to take a really great leader to uh overcome those tendencies. And I think this is the moment where I, I would do the advertisement for the Telberg Eliasson Global Leadership Prize, which you were a winner of last year, at least in part because the work you've done in the past, the work you're doing now. Uh, but it makes the point that great leaders uh, rise above specific circumstances, that they work across borders and boundaries. And that's what we need right now, perhaps now more than ever. You know, there's another point, I think, that um, two two points. One thing I don't want to close the conversation without saying is that, you know, um, through the Global Health Committee, um, I work in Ethiopia and in Cambodia, 
and uh, we have you know big TB programs in both countries, focusing in drug-resistant TB in both countries, and a big HIV program in Cambodia, and it's really a problem. So those pe people in those countries with so much less capacity than we have here or the UK has in the countries are, you know, and their patients who, because of lung disease and immunosuppression, are going to be the ones who are most susceptible. But this is a huge problem. And, you know, it's come to them as well, you know, so that it's, uh, it's really, an, and it's starting to, um, you know, increase in both of those countries, in both of those regions. But one other thing that we are talking about, like what good could come out of this. So one thing good could come out is what we're discussing about, um, you know, having a much more transparent and integrated and collaborative uh, global environment in, in terms of health. My son reminded me of this last night at dinner that, um, and I had read this too, that in China, you could see satellite images with much less pollution. They were seeing blue skies um, that that the, you know, sort of the human negative footprint on our planet in terms of environmental issues, we could see it clearly when the activity has stopped and everybody is, you know, sheltering in place. So that's another sort of example that where we could go if we, we fix some of these environmental problems and carbon-based, uh, you know, um, fuel issues. So it's important for us to remember what it looks like again, you know? I, I think that's a good point. This is not the way to get there, but it's a place we've got to get, we all have to get to. Let's stop there. It took a lot of your time. Um, thank you very much, Anne. You're welcome. Thank you for listening. Please check for other podcast episodes and video talks on our website, talbergfoundation.org. And follow us on social media to stay tuned for upcoming events.